Welcome to the Fourth Degree Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to episode six. Uh, sorry that I skipped a week, although I don't think many of you would have noticed. Uh, I do actually write and record and edit and everything to put this podcast out, and I had a lot going on last week, so please forgive me. But I hope you enjoy this one. Tales from Purgatory Old Lady Mac has been kind of quiet lately, and we haven't had a chance to talk about purgatory much. This has allowed me to have a few purgatory-related conversations with people who aren't as crazy and weird as she is. That said, there are a lot more day-to-day things that indicate that this might not all be what it's cracked up to be. So let's talk about some of life's quirky little puzzles that show that we don't live in reality, but in purgatory. First off, who hasn't been doing laundry, and when you're done matching all your socks, there's one or two that don't have a match? Well, what I do is I throw those back into the basket, assuming that the missing sock will show up the next time I do a load. And it rarely does. As time goes by, I just get more and more single socks in the laundry basket. I think I've got about 12 in there now. When you think that I buy an awful lot of socks that match each other, that means that the rate of pairs of socks turning into single socks is probably a lot higher. Well, what's up? I spoke to a Mary Gonzalez, a woman who does laundry for a local hotel. I was curious whether she witnessed this phenomenon or if it only happened at home. She told me that I would be surprised by how many people asked her this question. Mary says people come up with all sorts of crazy theories that the spinning and the heat makes the socks warp into another dimension, or they're some kind of mythical animal that steals them and eats them. She says that's all bullshit. Mary thinks it's static electricity that makes socks cling to other clothes and small socks can slip into corners and things like that. Plus, she pointed out she does laundry in a hotel. She doesn't clean a lot of socks. I think she was screwing around with me, or maybe she just didn't want to answer my question. She did seem like she was pretty busy, but I mean, I look for the socks, and I'd be able to tell if there was a sock stuck in the inside of my pants or a shirt when I wore it. When I was younger, I'd tuck a sock down the front of my pants for special occasions, as most men do. You can tell it's there. It's not like there would be a sock down your pants and you'd have no idea. Next, I asked a leading physicist from a large university, a Dr. Richard Bellman, if he could explain this using physics. He glared at me like I'd called his mother a name. Jesus, man, he barked. Some things are better left alone. He said, we can't explain everything at this point. If people knew how much we didn't know, they'd lose faith in science. They'd probably turn their back on us and they'd go back to religion or cults. Anarchy would reign and the funding would dry up. Missing socks are like dark matter, quantum gravity matter, antimatter, asymmetry, or even consciousness. We just don't know. According to Dr. Bellman, the chaos theory might offer a simple answer. Tiny differences in the initial state of a complex system can have significant effects on its future. The washing machine, according to Dr. Bellman, is indeed such a system. A sock can get twisted, turned, or tossed in any direction and end up in places you least expect. Tell the rubes that listen to your podcast, he said, that it's chaos theory and told me to quit wasting his time as well. I didn't know what to make of that, and I didn't want to sound stupid, and his temper was flaring. I just nodded and gave a good, "Mm mm-hmm, and that makes sense, and I moved on. The bottom line, listener, is socks disappear. You know those socks disappear, and no one knows where they go. Now, this next one seemed kind of boring when I first thought of it. At first, the idea was to be all, hey, what's up with weird human behaviors like biting your tongue and forgetting why you walked into a room? Uh, I thought maybe that would be like proof that there was purgatory and that we don't really know what's going on sometimes. I was about to toss it on the pile of ideas that weren't very good, but I asked my writing buddy, 
chat GPT about it, and whammo, I learned something interesting. And now, I'm going to share it with you. Eh, the problem is, I don't think this really deals with purgatory, but screw it, you know? Sometimes you need to live by your own rules. Have you ever walked into a room and you can't remember why or what you were doing? Well, of course you have. If you're like me, it's just another worrying sign of early onset dementia. The price we pay for living a crazy life. But no, my friends, it's actually not. It's called the doorway effect. The doorway effect is a psychological phenomenon related to memory and attention. It refers to the experience of forgetting what you were about to do or were thinking about as soon as you walk through a door or enter a new room. Isn't that crazy? The effect was investigated by a study led by Gabrielle Radvansky, a psychologist at the University of Notre Dame. His study suggested that entering or exiting through a doorway serves as an event boundary in the mind, which separates episodes of activity and files them away. When you walk through a door, your brain compartmentalizes your actions into separate episodes. This means that whatever task you thought of in one room seems to get stored away when you move to the next room, which can lead to you forgetting what you plan to do. In simpler terms, the act of passing through a doorway causes the brain to perceive a new scene. Your brain knows that as you walk through a doorway, because it's done it before, it knows that everything you perceive is about to change. So it creates a sort of a mental bookmark. It files the old scene away and clears the slate for the new one. The theory goes that sometimes the reason for walking into the room also gets filed away with everything else. The transition can make it difficult to retrieve the memory of your original intention. The doorway effect is one of many ways that our brains simplify the complex stream of information and experiences we encounter every day. Although it can sometimes be annoying in daily life, Life, it demonstrates how the brain organizes information to help us navigate the world. So that got me to thinking, maybe I'm wrong about all this. Maybe we aren't in purgatory. Maybe everything has a reasonable explanation. Maybe this theory of old lady Mac and me is not valid. Well, a whale named Havaldemir, that's right, a whale named Havaldemir, that is allegedly a Russian spy, was spotted off the coast of Sweden uh, this past week after not being seen since 2019. In India, an official drained 2 million liters from an irrigation pond after he dropped his phone in it. The water was supposed to be used to irrigate 1,500 acres of farmland. There's a place called Hell Pizza in New Zealand that is offering to allow customers to buy pizza now and pay for it via an amendment to their will after they die. The state of Florida has had to remind people that are submitting pictures for their digital driver's license to put clothes on. This is due to the many, many people who have been submitting pictures with no clothes on. So I think it's still pretty safe to say that this reality is too weird to be real. Purgatory, it is. Weird news. A tranquil Thursday in Lafayette, Indiana was disrupted recently by the shrill sound of a single gunshot. The shooter? A toddler. The victim? A guy named Treshawn Smith who, as it turns out, was an unwelcome guest. Because, you see, Treshawn Smith was a fugitive with an outstanding murder warrant from Markham, the next county over. You could say he was playing a high-stakes game of peekaboo with the little kid. Now, folks, we all know the phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. But no one ever mentioned anything about a three-nager with impressive shooting accuracy. So, how did Mom's little bodyguard end up in this predicament? It appears that our junior sharpshooter managed to get his sticky little fingers on a loaded firearm. And then, as any curious kid would, he pulled the trigger and popped around that would make Dirty Harry proud, hitting both Treshawn and Mom. Smith, having sustained a non-life-threatening injury, decided to make a trip to the hospital. And you know what they say about criminals returning to the scene of the crime? In his case, it was the hospital, rather conveniently, and it turned into a one-stop shop for a first aid and arrest. Kind of a wound and apprehend special, if you will. Smith, 
now recovering from the gunshot wound, was then detained by the Lafayette Police Department, who were as surprised as anyone when they ran a background check. Will the Markham Police Department send a thank you card to the child for his unorthodox assistance, or will they question the peculiar chain of events that led to the capture of their fugitive? Maybe both? Like, is this a good thing? It, it doesn't seem good. How did a toddler get access to a firearm? Who leaves a gun around with a toddler in the house? Or for that matter, a guy who's wanted for murder? And most importantly, will the American gun lobby use the questionable aim of three-year-olds to suggest more toddlers apprehend more criminals? I don't know, but stay tuned. In a wild and audacious undertaking, Thomas Nagovin has resurrected one of the most infamously disastrous films in history, Caligula. With its premiere at the prestigious Cannes Film Festival, Nagovin's new version titled Caligula, The Ultimate Cut, aims to bring the cult Swords and Sandals Shockfest back to its intended glory. Eh, sort of. For the uninitiated, Caligula was a grand attempt to create the most explicit and prestigious picture ever conceived. It, it was a porn, but it featured an all-star cast that included Malcolm McDowell, Helen Mirren, John Gielgud, and a busload of porn stars. There was kind of some deception that went on when it was made, and what unfolded during its production was nothing short of chaotic and borderline absurd. Financed by good old Bob Guccione, the founder of Penthouse Magazine, and with a script by the left-wing intellectual Gore Vidal, the film seemed to possess a recipe for hedonistic success. However, clashes between Vidal and the production team, along with the unorthodox vision of director Tinto Brass, sent the project out of control. It spiraled, and eventually the finished film barely resembled Vidal's original screenplay, leading him to call it easily the worst film ever made. Enter Thomas Nagovin, whose mission to salvage Caligula was met with skepticism and self-doubt. However, the Cannes Film Festival recognized the uniqueness of his endeavor and granted the new version a premiere in its prestigious Cannes Classic Strand. Negevin couldn't help but feel vindicated. Okay, all the therapy bills are worth it, he exclaimed. Dubbed the ultimate cut, Negevin's version aims to present the film as it was originally intended. While acknowledging the chaotic nature of the project, Negevin believes that the original edit, with its focus on extreme moments, neglected the subtler performances of the talented cast. He particularly highlights Malcolm McDowell's portrayal of Caligula as a standout performance that was undersold in the original cut. Negavan's reimagining brings a clear character arc to the forefront, tracing Caligula's journey from a cautious young man under the rule of the mad emperor Tiberius, brilliantly played by Peter O'Toole, to a tyrant reveling in his newfound power, all the way to his descent into cruelty and madness. Modern audiences, accustomed to the manipulative power of reality television edits, can better appreciate the impact of the original cut's clickbait approach on the film's overall narrative. However, fear not, loyal fans. Caligula, the ultimate cut, still retains the hallmarks that made the original a cult favorite. The elaborate sets, extravagant costumes, stunning cinematography, and of course, of course, the notorious scenes of orgies, nudity, shocking violence... They're all present and accounted for. Brace yourself for the unforgettable sight of the head-chopping machine and the scene where Caligula rapes both the bride and the groom at a wedding, moments that have always been dark and disturbing. In the end, Caligula, the ultimate cut, is a testament to the enduring power of the film as both an object and a documentary of a tumultuous creative process. Negavan's bold version invites audiences to revisit the enigmatic world of Caligula, highlighting the passion and dedication of the cast and crew while offering a fresh perspective on this truly unforgettable cinematic experience. So grab your popcorn and, you know, a few tissues, buckle up, 
and prepare to embark on a wild and unapologetically bizarre journey as Caligula returns to the silver screen in all its outrageous glory. Just remember, this is one film that has never shied away from pushing boundaries. Prepare to be shocked, entertained, and left utterly bewildered. Earlier this week in Auburn, Maine, a woman sought to redefine pet grooming standards by bringing in a raccoon to her local Petco to get its nails done. Yep, you heard that right. It was a raccoon. For those who are not yet sure about the next birthday gift for the friend with a raccoon, a manicure might not be the best idea. While some may admire the audacity of her consideration for the raccoon's overgrown claws, officials from the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife didn't share the enthusiasm. They were quite vocal, in fact, about their displeasure, reminding everyone that it is illegal to possess wildlife in Maine. Petco was also quick to point out that they do not trim raccoon nails. I wonder if they have to now put up a sign in all of their stores saying that. Like, we reserve the right to refuse service to raccoons. I mean, it is the USA. The identity of the woman remains a mystery. Like a shadowy figure in a wildlife noir, she brought the raccoon into the store around 1.30pm, possibly disrupting the raccoon's schedule. Raccoons are nocturnal, you see, and although they are often seen scrounging in urban environments during the day, it is a common belief that raccoons seen during the day likely have rabies. More on that soon. Here's the kicker. You know, if we needed one. I mean, I, I think a lady bringing a raccoon in to get its nails clipped is kind of the kicker. But it gets better, I suppose. Or worse. I don't know. While waiting for the unsuspecting Petco employees to refuse her service, she casually allowed a whole bunch of people to handle and even kiss the animal. Who the hell would kiss a raccoon? Some people did. Upon discovering the odd customer and her trash panda, the store manager didn't hesitate and asked the woman to leave the store. No word yet on whether the raccoon left with an attitude, cursing under its breath, sounding like Bradley Cooper complaining about the crappy customer service. Now, here's where things take another turn. Raccoons... As adorable as you may think they are with their bandit-masked faces, they are one of the most common carriers of rabies. And before you Google it, yes, rabies is bad news. It is a lethal viral disease that can be transmitted through saliva or neural tissue from a bite or a scratch, or if it comes into contact with the eyes, nose, or mouth, like, for example, if you kissed one. Remember the kissing part from earlier? Yeah, it's not such a cute image now, is it? There are many terrible ways to die. Rabies is one of them. And once you start to show symptoms, it's all over for you. You're done. Except, of course, for the pain, paresthesia, hallucinations, severe throat spasms, extreme hydrophobia, paralysis, coma, and finally the sweet release of death. Officials have since been urging anyone who believes they've been exposed to the raccoon to contact their healthcare provider immediately. In the meantime, the Maine Warden Service is on a mission to find the mysterious woman. They're asking the public for help in identifying her. Perhaps someone will recognize her from the description. Oh yeah, the lady who tried to give the raccoon a spa day. Hot steak. Last week I went to something called the Global Day of Discovery at the local Renaissance Hotel. And let me tell you. It was fantastic. The centerpiece of the evening was a performance by a couple of drag performers, and it was great. I don't recall the names of the performers, but one was uh, masculine presenting, which I didn't know was a thing, and both were members of the Two-Spirit community. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, Two-Spirit is often used with certain indigenous cultures in North America to denote a person who embodies both masculine and feminine spirits. It's an umbrella term encompassing a variety of gender identities, roles, and expressions. I read that on the internet, so if I'm wrong, I apologize, and if you really want to learn about it, I'm sure you can find somebody in your area who knows better than me. Anyway, back to Day of Discovery. The crowd loved the show, and the energy and positivity was off the charts. Still, though, you could tell there were a couple people in the crowd, 
that were against the whole idea. Fuck them though, right? It was super fun. They chose to stay, probably against their will, and I'm sure that some people chose to give the whole thing a miss. The venue was full though, so who cares? Do I agree with them? The people who didn't come? No, of course not. Do I have anything against them? Also, no. Am I woke? I don't think so. Am I anti-woke? Hard no. Well, you have to be one or the other, right? Well, friends, that's not how the screw turns. A healthy society needs a certain degree of disagreement to promote growth and change. The key to that is fostering an environment where disagreements lead to constructive dialogues rather than division. And we're not very good at that right now. Now, I'm not going to tackle the entire subject right now. Instead, I'm going to suggest one simple thing. Now let's dive headfirst into the turbulent waters of modern cultural debate to explore a potentially unpopular but crucial perspective. I do not think that we need an anti-woke movement. Ho oh, ho, I can feel some of you already bristling at that statement particularly if you identify yourself as a member of the anti-woke movement. You probably want to argue that wokeness, with its emphasis on identity politics, critical race theory, and progressive attitudes, is an existential threat to classical liberal values. You'll thump your fist on the table and tell me that the hypersensitive snowflakes on the left are just a bunch of whiners. They're entitled brats. Those woke fucks have no idea how the world works. Yet, before you prepare your objections, let's clarify a single point. I'm not trying to dismiss the genuine concerns that some have about the potential excesses of wokeness. I recognize that some elements can become dogmatic and create an echo chamber that stifles free thought, or can be used to justify a cancel culture that disregards due process. That is wrong, and it is a tool for the ignorant and strident bums to weasel a leg up on anyone dumb enough to walk into their trap. Instead, I question the necessity and efficacy of a dedicated anti-woke movement in addressing these concerns. First, in trying to fight against the so-called woke culture, we run the risk of further entrenching division. An anti-woke movement inherently suggests an adversarial posture, one that could amplify the very polarization it tries to oppose. We're increasingly defining ourselves not by what we stand for, but by what, or who, we stand against. This is a zero-sum game that does little to foster dialogue, compromise, or mutual respect, and all of these things are necessary for a healthy society. Second, an anti-woke movement often throws the baby out with the bathwater. While wokeness has potential pitfalls, it also promotes an acute awareness of social injustices, some of which are systemically embedded in our societies. It encourages empathy and a broader perspective beyond our personal experiences. An anti-woke movement, in its rush to counteract the perceived overreach, can inadvertently suppress these much-needed conversations about equality and justice. Third, framing the debate as woke versus anti-woke risks oversimplifying complex societal issues into catchy buzzwords. You see, it's not about picking a side in this culture war. It's about interrogating the underlying values, ideologies, and systems that shape our society. Reducing these nuances to woke or anti-woke creates an illusory binary that does little to foster understanding or to propel constructive change. Instead of an anti-woke movement, I would suggest a different approach. A pro-dialogue movement, if you will. A movement that values the open exchange of ideas, that understands disagreement, and is not only inevitable, but necessary in this pluralistic society that I honestly think we all kind of strive towards. This approach advocates for the willingness to listen before speaking, to understand before judging, and to engage rather than dismiss. In, in this proposed pro-dialogue movement, we don't blindly oppose wokeness. 
Instead, we scrutinize it, along with all other ideologies with a critical eye. We appreciate its emphasis on empathy and social justice, but it's okay to remain wary of potential excesses. It's okay to embrace its challenge to systemic inequalities, but question any tendency towards dogmatism or the quashing of dissent. More importantly, we recognize that wokeness is not a monolith. It's a broad, varied movement with a lot of voices, many of which, well, maybe I'll say some of which, indeed veer towards the extreme. Yet many others strive for a more inclusive, equitable world without advocating for the silencing of contrary views. We need to engage these voices and not dismiss them outright. The pro-dialogue movement isn't just about countering wokeness or any other specific ideology. It's about fostering a culture that values diversity of thought, that encourages robust debate, and doesn't shy away from difficult conversations. It's about ensuring that the marketplace of ideas remains vibrant, inclusive, and free from undue suppression. The challenge of our era isn't to fight against wokeness or any other ideology, but to navigate the challenging waters of diverse perspectives and conflicting values. It's a task that requires patience, humility, and above all, the willingness and ability to listen and learn. It's about recognizing that progress isn't a zero-sum game and that there's room for all of us to grow and evolve together. In the end, the goal should be to move beyond the woke versus anti-woke binary and focus on building bridges. By doing so, we can ensure a society where every voice has a chance to be heard and respected. A society where the richness of our collective wisdom outweighs the division of our political perspectives. So, uh, as always, let's continue the conversation, right? Remember, hot takes aren't just about generating heat. It's supposed to be about shedding light on new perspectives. Try to keep an open mind about this stuff and you'll find that you uh, can maybe get a little further ahead, you know what I mean? This has been an Abilities Ablaze podcast. Find us at abilitiesablaze.com. Thank you for listening. Please listen often and like our podcast. Oh, I burped up puke there.